This podcast is a 98 Studios production. Hey, it's Christy. Welcome to Do the Work. Today and every day, we'll talk about things that really matter. You, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. We'll discuss what emotional work looks, sounds, and feels like in our day-to-day lives. Relationships are what matter most, and they can be complicated. If you'd like a better connection with yourself, with others, and with your God, you are in the right place. So glad you're here. Welcome back to Do the Work. I'm here today with Dr. Steve Berry. Thanks for coming, Steve. Oh, thank you for having me, Christy. It's great to be with you. Do you want me to call you doctor? Please call me Steve. Okay, I will, since that's what I always call if, you. If there's any question, we can revisit that. But okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm okay in that knowledge. If I have a heart attack, I'll call you doctor. Sounds great. Okay, I'm going to tell a little bit about you, Steve, before okay. we begin. Steve was born in Frankfurt, Germany. He spent the better part of 18 years living on military bases throughout the country. He has three brothers and two sisters and enjoys football, wrestling, track, and traveling throughout Europe. He served an LDS mission to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, then attended Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, earning a Bachelor of Arts in Zoology and Chemistry. What's the best thing you learned from your zoology? Um, That moose are not to be toyed with. Really? Are they mean? Yeah, they're actually uh, responsible for the most injuries and deaths of any mountain animal. Really? Yeah, cougars have nothing on moose. Oh my gosh, that's good to know. So glad to have you here today to learn that. (laughs) He attended the University of Utah Medical School and the Utah Valley Family Practice Residency Program in Provo, Utah. He's been a board-certified family physician for 24 years in Orem, Utah, where he practices general family medicine and until recently, obstetrics. You're yep. done delivering babies? Finished uh, two months ago. Really? Yep. Mixed feelings about that? Very ambivalent. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's like a marathon. It's a wonderful thing, but it's great to see the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. He focuses on nutrition and healthy lifestyle for better health, where he encourages his patients to take their health into their own hands and provides resources for them to improve themselves. He enjoys speaking Portuguese with many of his Brazilian patients. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Steve is lucky enough to be married to Becky Berry, and we had Becky on the podcast As she a few weeks it. ago. She did. And they are the parents of four boys ranging from 28 to 8 years old. Steve has participated with Becky in several medical humanitarian missions to China, India, and Ghana. Steve enjoys attending the LDS Temple regularly, boating, camping, mountain biking, rock climbing, hiking, and any other way to keep up with his boys, as well as attending the theater, eating, and traveling. Steve, I'm so glad you're here. And this is something that I feel pretty passionate about, is trying to understand. We're going to talk today about how the body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. We'll refer to a book that I just think is so insightful it is not an easy read um, called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. So we're going to talk about that some. But really, when I started to make some connections, well, I was diagnosed with lupus when I was mm. Mm, 20. I started to have symptoms when I was in high school, but then mm-hmm. diagnosed when I was um, just after I'd had my first baby and I'd just moved to Hawaii and mm. got the call. And so I have been interested in physical health, trying to understand what that was and why I was being affected in such a way. But it was after I started coaching and helping individuals that I started to wonder about how emotional 
health affects our physical health yeah. and vice versa. I was in France with my former husband and my youngest son, and we had decided to go to the catacombs. And we were standing in line, just it was towards the end of the day, just praying that we were going to get in because they we knew that, that there was a, an exact cutoff line and we didn't know if we'd get to the front before they cut cut it off. But I started talking to the people behind us and asking them where they're from. And That's very like you, Christy. <laughs> it, well, why not make a friend while That's you're there? Awesome. <laughs> so the wife had just run the Paris Marathon and her husband was there with her. And we were talking about the marathon and just their visit while they were there. And as we got closer to the front of the line, I turned to the husband and said, what do you do for a living? You know, he basically said what he, he operates on the brain, uh, wow. right? Is that a brain surgeon? <laughs> the medical version of a rocket scientist. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. But I said, oh my gosh. And we were almost to the front of the line. I said, wait, I have a question for you. <laughs> and he said, what is it? And I said, I'm curious. A neurosurgeon. Is that what he was? Yeah, neurosurgeon. Yeah. Okay. I said, I have a few different clients that, have, that really struggle with migraine headaches. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm very curious, is it possible that their migraine headaches could be caused by emotional pain? Hmm. And he said, very possible. Wow. A neurosurgeon said that. That's, that's encouraging. He actually said it. And he said, in fact, I will not even discuss surgery when someone's having severe um, migraines or anything right. like that without addressing their emotional health without talking about their childhood, without figuring out. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't that that's, great? That, I agree with his approach. Yeah. I, I, and then I went in to see a bunch of skulls. We, went, we walked and walked through the catacombs, and I never saw them again. But I am very interested, and I think it's an important thing to become educated about. How does our life, how does our past our experiences in this life affect mm-hmm. our physical body. So then when I found this book, The Body Keeps the Score, I was just in awe of right. what I learned. So you're going to be one part of a two-part series. I asked you okay. to come on as a medical professional, a physician, who I know sees a lot of patients who come in with sickness. That's your job. They mm-hmm. come in with different ailments mm-hmm. and, and pains in their life. Yeah, before they see the neurosurgeon. Yeah, before exactly. And then... Uh, the other part of this two-part series, I'm I'm having a, a therapist come on, and we're going to talk about that side. Oh, that'll be excellent! Of how the body keeps the score. So excellent. So, Steve, thank you for being here. Did you just read the book, and how do you feel about the book? Yeah, I've gone through it a couple of times. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, this is uh, such a, an important topic, and it's so important that people listening understand more about themselves. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everything were straightforward? How I feel about the book, uh, I read it the first time. And I think I needed therapy after I read it. <laughs> it's it, true. It, it is. It is such a. I, I use the word thick. It is such a thick topic. It is difficult to read. Not for the technical parts. You know, as in my training as a physician, I, I didn't struggle with that. But he is so good at helping you see the experiences of his clients, of his patients, and you feel their suffering. And and some of these people have experienced things that. You, you just can't wrap your head around that they actually were alive during that event yeah. that either happened to them or they were just standing there in front of them, things t- transpired. And it's it's unbelievable that these people can keep going and the adapt, adaptations they've made 
to make sense of it all. And, and then how he has, he's a very humble author, by the way. Yes. Most doctors don't like to tell you that what they've done for 30 years has been wrong or has been <laughs> off. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is very good at saying, you, you know, because he came through at, at the, the renaissance of psychiatry. You know, Thorazine had just come out and they have, you know, the SSRIs had just been introduced. And he was What does in practice, SSRI mean? It, it's a type of medication called a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Very popular. Zoloft. Correct. Uh, Zoloft, uh, uh, Prozac's the most Prozac, most famous yeah. one. Okay. But he was around for this right in practice. And so he was using all of these things. And as he goes through the book, he's very clear about the limitations of things that we thought were the end all to trauma and the end all to negative emotion and, and emotional difficulty. And he's very clear towards the end of the book that while these things may have their place, we are far from tackling and, and overcoming the you know the treatment for these people that are left with these experiences that, that are ravaging them in their life and their body and he exposes how complex the body is in trying to get up the next day and make sense of the universe after this experience and you know as we'll get into you know 30 years later it is as if th- that just happened and and uh He's very good at being humble, saying, you know, he's tried a lot of things that didn't work. And he's very humble about that. And that was very refreshing to see. That's a true scientist that's willing to admit that what he has tried isn't good and that he is exploring things way outside of his uh, educational realm that offer some insight and some help. I, I, I respect people who are willing to say, I don't have all the answers. Everything I learned isn't the complete answer. And he's very open to many different forms of help. And I think in your next uh, podcast, you'll get into some of those other alternative forms, but super educational for me and super uh, validating to see that, that that there are things that are worth trying that may not be uh, at your doctor's office. Yes. As you say that, I really, that was what pulled me in immediately is he's, he was, was it was in the 70s, right? And he right. was having... Right. 1978 is he starts with his Vietnam veterans six years after they've been discharged. Yes. And they're not sleeping. It's it's like it happened 10 minutes ago. They're not functioning mm-hmm. and they're coming in. And the this medication had just, they just started that. Pro, Prozac had just shown up and yes. they had some antipsychotic injections. Yes. I've used a few of those. And yeah. and uh, so the revolution was on and they, they were hopeful that this would be the answer to many different problems. Yes. And he said, what I came to realize quickly is no one was asking questions about mm-hmm. their pa- no one was saying right. what happened right. they were treating the symptom instead of addressing their life experiences right. yeah and for any physician who's been on rounds rounds is where you 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 visit a patient very briefly at one point in the day and as, if they're there you usually see them every day and in an educational environment you have a team with you and then you have an attending who is the senior medical doctor who is the one who's supposed to know everything mm-hmm. and is the one you learn from and they would come to these patients in these psychiatric uh, units. They used to have uh, insane asylums. Is not a really popular word, but they were basically these these uh, infirmaries for people who were mentally not functioning. And he was uh, he was uh, an employee there. He wasn't a psychiatrist yet. And these patients would sit there, and the team would just talk about their behaviors. Yes. Well, he is he is delusional. He is screaming and yelling. He's running around the room. And then they would talk about treatments to minimize those behaviors so that they would appear to be more normal, whatever that word means. Yes. 
But in the evenings, he would say at midnight or so on his shift, the patient would come out where they hadn't interacted with anyone, sit with him and very lucidly tell him, tell them very traumatic stories and then go back to their delusional uh, behaviors. And he said the team would never, ever ask about their past, ask about, you know, what has influenced them or where they came from and just focus on their current behaviors and then try and suppress them. So as a medical doctor, I'm nodding up and down like, yep, that sounds like our rounds. You know, he he's, you know, spending you know 12 hours screaming and yelling. So let's give him this to sedate him so that he doesn't scream and yell for 12 hours a day. Yes. Let's fix right. the the low hanging fruit. Let's let's figure out a way to stop that behavior instead of addressing right. what would be causing right. that behavior. Mm-hmm. This book stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for over a hundred and hundred and eleven weeks. Yeah. That's a pretty long time. <laughs> well, it, it's a statement to how many people can relate to trauma. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think we know anyone who hasn't experienced trauma. And if you haven't, you probably need to talk to somebody because I'm sure you have. And and you certainly know somebody who you are intimately related to who has experienced trauma. Yes. He said when they began even describing trauma, they called it post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, that was coined just after Vietnam. Yes. Even though there was World War, there was Korean War, there was World War II, World War I, and they were all alive for those. And there's been wars in every generation all the way back to the beginning of recorded time, and they just coined the term. Oh, it just makes me sad to think of all of the people who didn't even have language for how well, they were feeling. You know, we still have a World War II veteran in my neighborhood. He's mm. almost 100. Mm-hmm. And he goes over and helps a widow lady in my in my neighborhood every day. <laughs> and I watch him, and he's one of the kindest, most gentlemen I know. But he has never once talked about World War II to me, not one time. Wow. And uh, because uh, uh, for many reasons, but they, they had no help. There was you go home, you make a family, and you move on. Yes, you just move on because mm-hmm. no one was talking about it. Physicians weren't talking about it. There weren't. It wasn't part of the culture. You, yeah. you just didn't talk about things that were hard. You just went to work and had children, had a family. And, and you know, we can talk about multi-generational trauma, but you, you, these children grew up with traumatized husband, dads who also now had traumatized wives because they had to live with it. And the children grew up with that trauma and, and they grew up, it, you know, you pass it on to your children. It, it's, it's as contagious as a cold. You know what? Well, that's what he said. He said in 1980, they defined trauma as outside the range of nor- like having an experience is mm-hmm. outside the range of normal experience. He said, but I have come to understand that is not true. In fact, that was in the medical book, right, of, you know, right, this right, description right. of that. He said, trauma is not an unusual experience at all. Mm-hmm. Trauma is something that all of us have or right. Many of us have in, in different ways. It he, is commonplace. Yeah, it's common. And he gave some examples of witnessing violence with your right. parents or right. abuse in any form, emotional, physical, sexual, spiritual, all kinds of different, different kinds of abuse, um, right. sexual experiences that are unwanted, that right. leave people it confused. It is so common. I see that every day, every yes. day. Yeah, I, you know... I'm thinking to myself, what do I think trauma is? To me, trauma is anything that damages your perception of your universe or your perception of reality. Anything that damages that. Like, oh, I didn't know this was part of my world. When you see something. And he makes the point, though, that it's not the trauma. It's what happens to you after the trauma 
that is traumatizing. And how you perceive the Mm -hmm. trauma and your safety. Because two people can have the same event and experience. One can have the effects of trauma and the other can't. Let me tell you a quick story. I have the side-by-side and it's really fun. And I take it rock crawling. And it's one of the funnest things I do. It's very liberating. But to do this, the, the, the side-by-side pitches and rolls and is at very steep angles. Because I've done this many times. To me, it is one of the most exhilarating things possible. I invited some friends to go with me. And they were in the back seat of this the side-by-side. And I am coming over these boulders at these extreme angles, just barely, barely tipping And I've done it so many times. To me, I am smiling ear to ear. And I thought, I wonder what their experience is. And I looked in the back seat. And I was aghast to see that I was not having the same experience as somebody who was having the same experience as me. Christy, does that ring a bell? (laughs) I'm saying, this is my podcast. (laughs) It rings a bell. It was traumatic. <laughs> so poor Christy Reeves was four point buckled in the back seat with no control over the steering wheel. I turned around and saw tears in your eyes. And for the first time, I realized that we were having the same experience and we're having completely different experiences. And you know what you don't know, Steve? I had some experiences as a teenager and as a child. Right. My brothers rode motorcycles and I would be on the back. And I it was not safe. <laughs> there oh were no goodness. helmets. They were flying. We would go up hills. I thought I was going to fall off backwards. So that's so interesting because you're right. I was so, and I love adventure. I felt I'm so about bad it. about that. I had no idea. <laughs> but that's, that's really, I, I hadn't even connected some of those right? things that there was something in me already that said, red alert, you could fall off of this. Right. One of the things he said, which was so You know, I read it as a physician because you're always looking for people who are wise and who've had years and years of experience. I've only been doing this for 24 years, and and that's not enough. I need lots Mm -hmm. more experience. He he said he had a patient say to him, every time you tell me how I'm supposed to feel about my experiences, I feel worse. (laughs) And he said he never realized it because he would say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. It's not your fault that you're blaming yourself for you know, your neighbor's behavior. It is not your fault. And she said, that just destroys me. And he said, never again did I tell another patient how they were supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. I accepted that they felt that and got curious. He didn't, those are not his words, but paraphrasing. And I, I started to explore why they felt that way instead of telling them how they were supposed to feel. Yes. Because I'm having the time of my life, uh, you know, driving that side by side. And I look back and, <laughs> and, and I realize that you are having a different experience. And, and, you know, we're friends and, and I just realized that you can never measure someone's trauma by your experiences. And it's so important that as we have family members and friends and colleagues that we accept what they have felt and how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to make ourselves comfortable to minimize their experience so that we don't experience discomfort. Well, that's something that Dr. Vanderkolk actually speaks of. He says, what happens is we have trauma, we have these experiences. And then generally what happens is we act in a way to protect ourselves, to say, hey, hey, I'm not comfortable, which pushes people away from us. Mm -hmm. And and I've, I've heard it said, he didn't say this, but the worst kind of trauma is to be in trauma and to not be heard. 
or mm-hmm. cared for inside of the mm-hmm. trauma. And so often our behavior, and you mentioned um, men's, mental institutions mm-hmm. where we, you know, we used to just ship people off if oh, they isolated. acted. Yeah. And we would isolate them. So again, add to their trauma, but they mm-hmm. had, they would respond in a way that today we know, oh, that's trauma. I had a conversation recently and I was talking with two individuals and when one of them spoke, it was really elevated. Um, her voice was loud and she had tears in her eyes. And I just kept saying to myself, there's so much pain there. Mm-hmm. There's just so much mm-hmm. pain. But before I understood all this, I would think, for heaven's sakes, what is wrong with you? Why are you, we are at restaurant. You know, you're, I don't think that anymore. Right. I think, oh my gosh, there's so much pain. Mm-hmm. It's, he, he talks about uh, these mirror neurons that we have. And the, the data is very clear about how critical it is from conception, not just birth, but conception, to have parents that are connected, very self-aware. And as you are transitioned from that environment into the world, that that relationship continue. And the, the data is clear about children who are born to dysfunctional parents, either one parent or two and how they they don't get what we need. What we need is first to feel safe. That is a, that is our basic human requirement. That our first few years are safe. I tell my patients all the time. I, I see these sweet mothers who are just just stretching themselves thin to provide the best environment. It's so wonderful. Yeah. I have the best job to see these beautiful mothers just uh, to the point of exhaustion, trying to ensure that their children have the safest environment possible. And, and my, my phrase to them is home is the safest place to allow your children to learn outcomes of their choices because the outcomes that happen that are adverse don't affect them negatively if the environment that they experience their outcomes is a safe environment. Yes. When they have parents that love them, reinforce that love, allow them to make choices and experience their outcomes in an environment where they continue to be safe, they grow up in it with a fundamental understanding of the world as a relatively safe place, in spite of some event that may happen, these people tend to do better through traumas if their foundation is correct. Yes. When these kids grow up in a dysfunctional home where mothers cannot, where they do not not allowed to mirror their mothers, a mirror neuron is like if you ever played peekaboo with your six month old. Mm-hmm. The, the six month old is mirroring this. These kids do it almost from birth. They can mirror behaviors, yeah. and when they don't get a chance to fully develop their empathy and their understanding of human behavior, they grow up so dysfunctional, disjointed, and and it it, it just it sadly expands on itself. Their their social network fails. I did a research project in medical school about homelessness. Mm-hmm. And you know, this this doesn't doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that homeless people have a very, very minimal social network, if any at all. And you can trace it all the way back. You know, why is that guy homeless? Almost always, there is no social network there. Either by choice or by correct and experience. And yeah. if you think about human nature, nobody chooses to not have a social network unless they have had trauma, which has not been allowed to to heal and resolve. And we can talk about the the physiology of the dysfunction that happens when your your network is scattered. And, and, and you're not developed correctly because you still have the need to be safe and seen and validated. Those needs are, are from an infancy. And when they're not developed correctly, 
it is it, it, you it's such a paradox that they need to have relationships and are terrified to have relationships yes it's it's a human need yep. and they're afraid of it so okay steve how would you define what does it mean that the body keeps the score that's a great question and and there's a whole book about it i re- i recommend you read <laughs> And, and Don't get sassy. Yeah, he, he, he nails this. <laughs> what this means is that it is not just our thoughts that remember, that our entire body is a, is a memory facility for what happens to us. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Uh, I was in another country once, and this wonderful lady gave me some chicken. And uh, nobody else around me ate it. I ate it all because I, I like know to eat this things. Is going. <laughs> well, it turns out that chicken wasn't handled properly, and the next eighteen hours were a rough go. The Your first, body was keeping the, the score. <laughs> the, the first nine hours, I was worried I was going to die. The last nine hours, I was worried I wasn't going to die. <laughs> and it was probably seven years before I tasted chicken again. It was so so traumatic for me. And, and to this day, I'm I'm 35 years past that experience. Becky knows if I come in the kitchen and something's sitting on the counter and I don't know how long it's been there, I, I get nauseated. I just look at that food and I'm nauseated. Yes. And it's clear back from that. So maybe I need a little bit of, of uh, some of his uh, therapies that he recommends <laughs> at the end of the book. But, but it, you know, I laugh at this because it's just chicken. Yes. But imagine... That visceral reaction, I just look at chicken. I don't have to think about it. And I'm already wondering, how long has it been on the counter? And my stomach is churning. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know nothing about it other than it's probably really good. And I've eaten much chicken since then. Yes. But I still has, it still has to pass my, you know, how was this handled? Who cooked it? How was it cooked? How long has it been out? Because that was such a traumatic experience. And I'm, I'm using chicken as a neutral experience because people who listen to this, I, I don't want to trigger anyone and, and minimize anybody's traumas. So I apologize right. if someone says, no, well, well he's minimizing my traumas using chicken. No I'm, no, I'm trying to illustrate that even the simplest of things can have a lifelong effect on how you interact with, with your environment. Just a simple thing. Our brains are predictive organs, yeah. Dr. Vanderkolk yeah. says. Yeah, and so, so it's trying to protect you. Right. Yes. I just look at chicken and my, my stomach becomes nauseated. Yeah. Okay. So as a physician, tell me how, when someone comes in, how do you see this now mm. in your practice? Yeah. You talked about chicken, but how yeah. does it show up in your so, practice? So here's the difficulty. So this is where we get into life is more complex than we would like to think it is. Yeah. So let's take the migraine headache, for for example. Oh, let's go back to tummy aches. We'll talk about tummy aches. So this beautiful mom who's very, very connected to her children, has a, has a good home, and she and her husband are trying their best to make their family work. And they come in, and little Susie gets a tummy ache. And she's had a tummy ache for quite a while. And, you know, we talk about, you know, how this, you know, shows up is there. And again, I don't want to make anyone comfortable. We talk about their bowel habits. We talk about their eating habits. We talk about sleeping habits. And let's suppose that it turns out that this tummy ache happens every morning before school, but never on Saturdays or Sundays. Okay. This is a common thing. We'll use this this one because it's simple. Yeah. And it turns out that there's somebody at school that teases her. Yes. And, And she doesn't talk about it because she's, you know, she's seven and 
and doesn't really understand life enough to know that, well, isn't that everyone's experience to go to school and have somebody tease them? Yes. We call it bullying. And in first and second grade, I, I talked to parents about that. I'm like, well, yeah, it is bullying, but it's kids trying to figure out the world. Yes. So, but her tummy hurts. And interestingly, never on Saturdays or Sundays. But if you ask her why, she has no idea why. No, she just doesn't feel good. If you ask her parents why, well, they don't know why because she's never mentioned anything. Yes. And so you have to sit down and, and medically. So that's the easy one. But it also could be an autoimmune disease. It could be a food allergy. It could be simple constipation. It, it could be a tumor in her abdomen. They have Wilms mm-hmm. tumors, these kidney tumors that grow and push on everything and hurt their tummies. And so... The problem is, is as you go to see your doctor, he's got 25 people to see past you. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they're evil or that they just want money. It's that, you know, everyone's really smart after the last play of the Super Bowl. Totally. And and you should have known what they should have done. Should have done. Mm-hmm. And so be nice to your physician when you finally realize that there's something that you've talked to him twice about and he hasn't asked the questions that you now are aware he should ask. So when, when I empower my patients to do research and I encourage them to Dr. Google, we, we giggle about it. Dr. Barry, Dr. Google. And I smile and say, good for you. Tell me what you learned. Because sometimes they doctor Googled the right things. And sometimes we're not sure. Those are the two places we go, well, you know, you read some information and it doesn't make sense to me, but I have nothing to tell you otherwise. So let's let's follow this line. So these are things that, that you need to think about. And as long as you're thinking about other causes than just your body, I think it's, it's worth thinking about. Like my migraines, is it really not just that my parents had migraines and now I have migraines? There's no question. There's a genetic link to those. But how many people have I seen change jobs and their migraines went away? Totally. How many people? How many people have I seen change pillows and their migraines go away? Yeah. And so these are difficult things to, to whittle out. And you're responsible for your health care. So I encourage you as you're listening to include your physician as your team player but he's not or she's not in charge of your healthcare. You need to get smart about you and you need to learn everything about migraine headaches and you need to learn about all the things that can cause them and look at your life. I tell my patients all the time, 20% your parents gave you and I'm sorry about that. They gave you these problems. You have this genetic disorder. You have this tendency. 80% is your life. 80% of your health problems are things that come along and you pick them up as you go along. Mm. And most of us aren't really aware of how much power we have over our well-being. Mm. And that's a good thing. That's good news that we actually can control that much of it. It's good news. But what when you say that, I think back to what he stated in his book, which he says, I am continually impressed by how difficult it is for people who have gone through the unspeakable or trauma to convey the essence of their experience. It is so much easier for them to talk about what has been done to them, to tell a story of victimization and revenge, than to notice, feel, and put into words the reality of their internal experience. Mm -hmm. So when you say it's a good thing that you're responsible, that you can Mm -hmm. make changes, it is, but I don't know how, I think so many individuals are so afraid to even ask the question, could this be emotional pain? Could this be coming from being raised in a home that looked like everything was great, but my mm-hmm. mom or my dad were completely unavailable emotionally mm-hmm. and I had, or I had to learn how to caretake for my mom or my dad because they were not emotionally well, or I saw this happen at school over and over again. So many times people have shoved that down. They're right. not even aware of it right. really a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so for, for someone to come in and say, 
hey, could this be emotional? I think I think that's a hard thing for people to even know is out there. It's not my first go-to, especially <laughs> with somebody I don't know. One of the joys of being a family doctor is is majority when I look at my schedule in the morning, majority of the people that I'm seeing, I've known them for years. And time out for a commercial. I know several of your clients and they love you. Oh, you well, are you, they just speak. They're patient. <laughs> they are patient, understanding and forgiving. <laughs> yes, I when you say that that reminded me I was thinking about that on my hike this morning actually that I just know several people who feel seen and heard by you. So I just want to like, that's mm. just okay, back to Appreciate back that. to your regularly scheduled program. Go Appreciate ahead. that. And so we have a head start because I know their history. Yeah. I was going to be, you may not know this. I was going to be an ophthalmologist. Oh, and then I met a family doctor. He knew his patients. He knew their wives. He knew their children. Mm. He had delivered them. Mm. And I thought I can do this for 40 years. Yeah. And uh, nothing wrong with ophthalmology. Grateful for great eye doctors. <laughs> But but there it's such a head start when you sit down with someone you know over 20 years who has a little medical knowledge to get some insight into what the things are that your body's trying to tell you that don't seem to have a medical answer because it's so frustrating. You know, you, you talked about the words that don't come for your traumas. There's a word for that, alexithymia. We have such funny words for things. <laughs> you know, I tell people medical school only takes a week. The other four years are just learning all the big words. <laughs> That's good. You just, the song, head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, <laughs> knees and toes. Now the rest of it's just words. Yeah, but but our brain, our, our, our lobster brain, if you follow Jordan Peterson, he talks about lobsters and that makes Becky laugh and roll her eyes. <laughs> but we have this primitive brain that is designed to keep us breathing mm-hmm. and to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. And that's what it does. Its job is to keep us safe. And in an atraumatic world, it works really well. Mm-hmm. And when we have trauma is when we bump into a steel wall with our own protective mechanism that did not do what it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. And, keep us safe. And that's trauma. And when you're a child, and the people that are to keep you safe are the ones providing your trauma, your brain's still wiring and you're learning, your, your primitive brain is learning what it means to keep you safe. Can you imagine the, the, the disorganization of that wiring when, when your whole world is, is wrong and your biological instinct is to wire your brain to, to, to understand when you're safe and when you're not safe based on parents that are whole, sane, together organized yes. and you didn't get any of that yes and and it and you can see how they grew up completely dysfunctional and completely disorganized and and there's an actual circuit in your brain that keeps you from being able to express that so many people sit with me and they can't tell me they can't identify what's really wrong they can't say the words mm-hmm. they can feel it and they can see it but it, but so don't feel like you're crazy it, it's part of your brain's wiring we think it's for protection because these, you know, when you be, when you're traumatized, you, your brain stops relaxing. It becomes on high alert all the time. Some people would, would guess these people that jump in squirrel suits off of buildings and off cliffs. Mm-hmm. Most of the pioneers of that are dead because it's such a high risk sport, yet people do it. But you think, why would you do something that has such a high death toll? Well, some people would suggest that that's the only time they feel alive. Now, I apologize to anyone who does it, who doesn't have any trauma, but but you think, why would you do something so deadly? And and he talks about in his book that some of these people have had such trauma that to get above it 
or around it or outside of it, they need to do crazy things. Be able to feel. And even crazy enough to go back to the trauma. How crazy is that? Mm -hmm. And you go back to what you know because it's the only time that you feel alive. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult for some people. You're like, well, why would you go back to someone who beats you? Mm -hmm. You know, he beats you. And you may leave him and then you find someone else who beats you. I have patients that do this. And I tell, tell me what you saw in him. And it's all they know, and it helps them. It helps them make sense of their universe because that's what they know. And before, instead of frustration and and even sometimes anger, I, I have such compassion because their wiring is off, and their their body feels all of this. They're in for all kinds of complaints of things that don't function and don't work. Even I see a lot of patients with eating disorders. We can talk about how the body keeps the score through eating disorders. That's a very easy example of how trauma becomes a physical problem. That's probably one of the easiest ones for people to understand how this works. Yeah. Well, yes. And I think so many people, I've never had trauma (laughs) and I have an eating disorder or whatever. And as you're, as you're describing that, Steve, I, it is so interesting because our physical response, our our, our brain will protect us, even if it means we're going to numb Mm-hmm. ourselves so we don't mm-hmm. feel or if it means that you know we'll we'll become amazing at something or we will you know distract in different ways right that is another way that our body is keeping the score right and as a physician i think you see parts of people's lives that you know someone can be up on the you know just killing it as the ceo of their company mm-hmm. And yet they're meeting with you saying, I can't sleep. Yep. I'm every day. Does every that day. happen? Yeah. Every day you get people who are polished and, and everything you see about them is just, you know, if you have, if you attend any church, you will just look around. I look around at my local church, wonderful people and every family looks perfect and polished, Many. but I know most of the people and, and they're good people and, and they have trauma yeah. and they're trying to do the best they can. Yes. So can trauma cause physical pain? And then often, um, Bessel van der Kolk says that often the physical problems last much longer than the emotional problems. Absolutely. What could th- what could he mean by that? And what are some common physical symptoms? Well, we'll go you back. You said stomach ache. Yeah, yeah we, we've talked about this a little bit, but for for those listening, you, you just have to wonder, you know, you've been to 10 different doctors about a physical problem. And I see people all the time as a primary care doctor because they go to specialists and they come back and say, I've seen five specialists and nobody can fix my fill in the blank. The x-rays are normal. The MRIs are normal. The lab tests are normal. Everything's normal. But this is this is running my life. This this problem I'm having, I, I can't get away from it. I can't ignore it. I can't anything. Our bodies are in direct communication with our brains. And if you don't believe that, you know, a simple uh, example would be, have you ever watched a horror movie? No, not I, I for remember, a long time. <laughs> I remember when I was 15, I thought I was very mature, and I snuck into the movie theater. Mom, I'm sorry that your son has done this. <laughs> and I watched The Shining of all things. Oh, for long's sake. I'd never seen a horror movie, but I knew I was tough and mature, and I could handle this. Well, Satan himself wrote that script. <laughs> I, I had never I had never even in my wildest dreams imagined things that could be like that. I realized I was the most naive 15-year-old kid ever, I, I told God, I'm, I will never do this again. I mean, I, I, I broke the law sneaking in. I didn't pay. And, and, and all I heard in my voice was, well, you got what you didn't pay for. Yeah. <laughs> and as a result, 
I have trouble with the little show Goosebumps. I mean, my kids want to watch, I'll hide behind a cup, the blankets watching Goosebumps <laughs> because it is so traumatizing to me. I'm, I'm shocked that someone would, would come up with this. It is so traumatizing. And, you know, you talk about horror movies and my back tightens, yeah. my muscles tighten. And, and as you watch things, you know, if, you know, I was thinking about examples of this, how your body and your mind are mixed. Everyone can relate to this, I think. Think about maybe somebody you liked in high school who reached over and held your hand. Your heart is racing 100 miles an hour. You're starting to sweat. (laughs) And nothing happened. You're not running around the block. Your brain and your body are, are, they're beyond you. They are doing their thing. And you're not telling it to do anything. You have this, this primitive brain. He says you have an emotional brain and an intellectual brain. And they communicate in a healthy relationship. In an unhealthy relationship, they are operating independently of each other. Mm. So your emotional brain can get over trauma. I can think through this. Well, you know, I was on the freeway and a truck hit me and it makes sense that it hit me because he was drunk and things like that. But I lost my, you know, I used to be an ER doc and I worked on I-70, an ER off I-70. And and I saw the most horrific auto accidents and I had to go tell these children that their parents were no longer alive or tell mothers that their babies were no longer alive mm. and then be there for the first six hours while they had to deal with that reality. Mm. And your your intellectual brain can handle way more than your emotional brain can. And they would come to grips with this, but without help and without intervention, your emotional brain doesn't have a place to put this. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yes. And and what you end up doing is suppressing that, but the signals are still there, just like they are when you watch a horror movie, like I watched and I'm still in therapy over, <laughs> or, or when that boy touches, your girl touches your hand and your heart races and you sweat. That is remembered. You, you, have, you have a big nerve that goes from your brain to your, your guts, and it's called a vagus nerve. 80% of it actually is from your guts to your brain. And you have serotonin receptors all through your gut. Those are the ones in your brain that these drugs like Prozac work with. But they're also all through your gut. They're all through your body. And and our body is literally, it's like a data bank for our life. It stores things. It remembers things. Yeah. And we can intellectually shut it down. We're very powerful. We, we call it compartmentalizing. Yes. In fact, to the point we don't remember. You know, conversion disorders are a good example of that. People come back from more blind. Or paralyzed. I have patients that have seizures in my waiting room, and my staff will run to me and say, "Doctor Barry, they're having a seizure," and I will say, "Is any is everybody okay? All right, I'll, I'll be there in a minute because I know these people, and they're not really having a seizure. They're having an emotional brain, intellectual brain war, and they're having it in my waiting room. But the first few times, I was calling the ambulance, I was getting them to the right. ER. But I've seen this enough that you just get them out of so to, to minimize the trauma for everybody else. And you just put them in a room and then you come in and we talk. Yeah. And because they are not in control of this. And create a safe space for Correct. them. Correct. But they're not in control of this. They don't know. But when they get to my office, it happens. Yeah. Because that's where that's where they can no longer block this. And, and they come together. And in my office, they have this event. And we put them in a room and I sit down with them and we talk. You know what? I'm connecting my dentist experiences. <laughs> I'm serious. Are you comparing me to the dentist? <laughs> no, but I'm saying how many people hate the dentist? Oh, and right. I would guess somewhere along the line, they had a painful experience at the dentist. And so that is their brain saying, 
hey, oh. something could go bad here. Oh, yeah. Well, even in my office, I have grown men who, when I tell them they need a flu shot, they become five years old. Yes. And they say, uh, do I do I really have to have a flu shot? I mean, they're, they're 200 pounds, and yeah. this needle is half an inch thick or, yeah. or long. And and I, I used to be aghast, and now I get it. And I say, you know, tell me what, how you feel. You know, I say, tell me how you feel about having a flu shot. Yeah. Well, a lot of men don't like to talk about their feelings about anything, much less a flu shot, because their intellectual brain is struggling with that. Well, well how dumb is this that I don't want to get a flu shot? But you watch their blood pressure. It goes way up. Yes. Their heart rate starts racing and they start sweating at me saying, you know, would you like a flu shot this fall? And they are grown men. The body keeps the score. Because when they were three, four, five years old, they got flu shots or shots and they weren't ch- asked about it. And yeah. I was the same with my kids. You yeah. know, you can like it or not like it, but you need to get your yeah. vaccines. Or else... They had a sick parent or sibling and they would go to the hospital and see all the needles in their arms. And And they died. Yes. And so shots mean I'm going to die. Yeah, the body. Right. It's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. But intellectually, they don't think that. It doesn't even cross their mind that someone could die. They just sweat. Their heart races. They tense up. And that's all they can think about is like, you know, I, I don't know why I'm acting this way. They really don't. They have no idea. Yeah. Yes. Steve, thank you. Thank you so much for talking about it, that we could just go on. And I'm really excited to have a therapist come mm, in and address so good. some of the that side of this. I want to ask you, I ask everyone at the end of every podcast, sure. what could someone take from the podcast today or even that we haven't spoken of that you or you read in the book that, sure. that just one thing that they could do this week to become to just do the work. And as, as you were talking, I thought, what if you just got curious? Mm-hmm. What if you just got curious? Ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What don't I like to talk about or think about? When do I walk out of a conversation? Right. Get curious and ask yourself, why? Why don't I want to address that? What What causes that fear? That's one thing that I think someone could do after this conversation today. How about you? What would you Thank you for asking. Thank you. There's a lot of things I would say. Let me just say this, and and I don't say things very quickly, is before you can ask those really amazing questions, the question that I want you to ask yourself is, am I safe? Mm. Because until I am safe, I am in no position to look deeper into my experiences, to look deeper into my emotional brain. So the question, am I safe, is a question I ask all the time. When I examine people, I say to them, the most important thing that happens during our exam is that you feel safe. Yeah. I say that out loud. Yeah. So every part of this exam, to me, is part of making sure that you're okay. But if there's any part of this where you don't feel safe, I want you to say something. You're in charge of what we're doing. And I, I I mean that literally because there are so many things that the body remembers as I am touching them in ways that that are not you don't it just doesn't happen right. at the supermarket right right and and most people handle it but some people just compartmentalize and they endure it and and that's a terrible way to manage your life so I would say think about what what it means for you to be safe think about where it is you feel most safe and then think about who it is in your life that mirrors that safety 
It may not be the person you're married to, unfortunately. It may not be the children you raised. It may not be the friends that you actually spend time with. It may not be your parents. So those are the things that you have control over, of, of finding a place that's safe. And I would invite you, you mentioned your hike this morning. I hiked this morning too, hiked the mm-hmm. Y. That's a, that's a hike here in Provo, Utah that everybody knows about. There's just in Rock Canyon. Yeah. And, right next uh, to it. and, and so I, I just came from our LDS temple. That mm-hmm. is a religious uh, building that I go to to perform religious services for other people. Mm-hmm. And that makes me feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I do that with my wife because I feel closer to her and I feel safe with her doing that. Mm-hmm. And then we get to go home. It's, it's a fairy tale thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm so blessed that I get to have a place where I feel safe, a person with whom I feel safe, and an activity that feels safe to me. And when I've done those safety things, that is when I am most uh, likely to be able to start thinking about the questions that you raised. What about me hurts? What about me is scary? What about me doesn't feel safe? And once we are safe, that's when we, we can begin to start, I call it, this is, I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. I call it scraping off the scab and digging out the wound. Yeah. You have to be safe before you reach down and do the painful work. It is painful work. And when you're disorganized, when you're unsafe, when your world is not predictable, there is no way that you're going to pull this off. Why don't homeless people get better? Because they're not safe. Yeah. Why do people in abusive relationships not heal? They're not safe. Why do kids not heal? And if they're in a relationship that that is their family is causing the trauma, they're yes. not safe. So think about those things. And your questions are excellent. They follow that very, very well. That's great, Steve. Thank you so much. Find someone that can help you feel safe mm-hmm. if you don't have someone. That yep. is that is so key. Yep. Like, and a therapist is one. And as a family doctor, I, I hope that the people, I wish all my interactions were safe interactions after 25 plus years. Um, but but that's what I try and foster. And, and, and I know that whoever doctor you see, they're trying to do the same thing, a safe environment where you can begin your journey. We all have things we need to revisit because it makes us feel and act in ways that we're unconscious about. That's why people react so funny sometimes. And yeah. uh, because they don't even know why, but but uh, so I invite, I, I hope that whoever is listening has a safe space and a safe friend. I do too. You will have many choices in your day and in your week. Steve and I hope you'll choose to do the work. Amen. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, share a written experience or ask me a question, go to coachchristy.life and fill out the podcast questionnaire and we'll be in touch with you soon. There are no dumb questions or experiences, just opportunities to learn and do the work. Have a great week.